So Otto von Bismarck, he's a, a German chancellor, I think, in, from the 1800s. He's credited, uh, it's, it's, it's not really him, but he's the most famous person who, who sort of related this quote. It's that um, God looks out for fools, children, and the United States of America. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, from what I understand, I did a little bit of research on this quote. It turns out that the quote was actually, um, it's, it's a French quote. The French developed it in the wake of the French Revolution, which if you're a student of history, you know did not go very well. They, uh, they saw the United States and they saw um, really a very successful uh, enterprise where the, the 13 colonies were able to separate uh, from the crown and did so, it was a very difficult a war, of course, a revolutionary war, but it was very surprising to the world that a, a, a ragtag group of people who were sort of backwoods, you know, uncouth sorts, were able to, to defeat the greatest military in the world and set up a, a, a democracy at the time and then eventually a constitutional republic. And so the, the French looked at this and they had the same kind of revolutionary fur, uh, fervor and they felt that it was important that they too uh, revolt against the monarchy and develop a, a new system of government based on uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity or brotherhood. And things started out very well, and then they got very, very bad. And if you remember from your junior high history class, as I do, uh, the guillotine, which I guess is the, the uh, American way of saying guillotine. Dad, is that right? He, he taught it to me. I don't know. Apparently, this guy Robespierre was really not a good guy, and he was killing a lot of people. It, what, what started out as this, this wonderful idea of freedom, of democracy, of people empowered, degenerated very quickly into a, a bloodbath, and eventually led to further tyranny. And so as the French reflected on this, on what had happened, they looked at it and they're like, we're the French. Our country, uh, what, what's his name, Charlemagne? He was a big deal in, in a thousand years ago. Right? We're, we're one of the oldest, most cultivated, most cultured countries in the world. And when we try to have a revolution, it turns into a disaster. When these backwoods, I, I, Georgia colony started of, of just prisoners, a lot like Australia, right? when these prisoners, when these people who couldn't pay their debts, so we shipped them off to get rid of them, these debtors, these prisoners, these, they're, they're backwoods, they're maniacs, and somehow they did it right? Impossible. The only explanation is that God looks out for them the same way he looks out for fools and for children. Because the United States of America is really a country of fools and children. And you think about that. You think about kids, and you think about... Um, we say fools, and, and it, it's remarkable. It's remarkable that... Uh, well, I know it's remarkable that Scott is here today because I know how he grew up. I knew the kind of ridiculous things he got up to when his parents weren't watching. And I can tell you it's a miracle that he's here today. Or, for that matter, my uncle, my mom's brother, once uh, filled up a can with gunpowder when, her parents were, uh, when their parents were gone and lit it on fire and almost blew his hand off. And he's still with us because God looks out for fools, children, and the United States of America. And I think there's something to that. I think there is an element to which we, we look through the scriptures and we do see that God has a special place for children. God has even a, a more special place for orphans. 
Uh, in Psalm uh, 68.5, we read, Father of the fatherless, defender of widows, God is from his holy habitation. That God's got a special place in his heart for those people who can't do it on their own. And so, uh, if, have the ushers passed out this, uh, this note sheet? Yes, you've got it. Um, this is part two of a series uh, that I began a year and a half ago. Um, I, know, I know that you've been waiting with bated breath for the conclusion. I didn't even know it was a two-part series until I was reading the scriptures this week, and I said, oh, this is the second half of the story that we read uh, in Luke 7. And I was remarking to Air Bear, I was like, I, we, I, I have to do this. We have to, we have to have part two of the sermon series. So I'm just going to assume that you remember uh, that, and we're just going to be, ha-ha, just kidding. No, I'm not going to assume that. I will, we will go back over um, what, we, what we encountered a year and a half ago. And uh, if, you, if you'll remember that sermon, uh, it began with me having an interactive time with the congregation where I asked the, the congregation to come up with a title for my sermon, okay? And we read the story of uh, Jesus raising a, a young man uh, from the, the village of Nain, okay? And we read this story, and I asked people for a name, title of the sermon, and again, Scott Eichler, he, got, he, stole, he stole my thunder. He said, Jesus saves a widow. And I was like, Scott, next time be quiet. I want to be the one who says that stuff. Scott got it right. All right, so we're going we're gonna to do that review in, in just a moment, but first we're going to read the text for today, and then we're going to go back and see uh, the first part of our, of our second part sermon. So if you, can, if you turn in your pew Bibles to Acts 9, we're going to look at verses 36 to 43. I also have them on your note sheet. Um, if you use the note sheet, you'll have, uh, I, I've put in the second to last verse something in brackets. I've changed uh, the text a little bit there, and I'll explain that later. Um, but please, please stand and let's, and let's read this together. This is Acts nine thirty six to 43. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, when he, uh, they brought him to the upper room, and all the w- widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and knelt down and prayed, and, turn, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints, and especially the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you look at the top of your note sheet, you see I've uh, printed out our, our sermon text from a year and a half ago, um, Luke seven eleven to 17. And if you'll notice, I've, I've uh, italicized uh, a number of the, the, the phrases and words in Luke 7, and I've italicized a number of words and phrases in Acts 9. 
Uh, the reason I've done this is I'm trying to point out the, these really remarkable similarities in the way that Luke tells the first story and the way that he tells the second story. And I think there's a point for doing that. And so I'd just like to highlight a few of those just so you get a sense for how similar these stories really are. Um, the first thing you, can, you notice is that Luke calls out the place that we're in. In, in Luke 7, it's Nain. And uh, in, Luke, or in Acts 9, it's uh, Joppa. Then we find out that there's somebody who's dead, right? Uh, Dorcas or Tabitha becomes sick and died in Acts 9. In Luke 7, a young man is dead. And then we find out who this affects. In Luke 7, we, we find out that this young man who died was the only son of a mother, and she was a widow. And then in Acts 9, we find out that uh, Tabitha, Dorcas, was a woman full of good works and charitable deeds. Uh, so much so that later on we find out that when Peter uh, goes to the house, all the widows are there weeping, just as in Luke 7, we see that the young man's mother is weeping. You'll notice that in verse 13, Luke seven thirteen, the Lord saw her. He had compassion on her and said to her, don't weep, because presumably she's, she's, she's crying. And then we see the remarkable similarity in the way that both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Peter react or interact with the corpse, the dead body. Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. Peter says, Tabitha, arise. And in the Greek, there's, the arise is exactly the same. And then we see that the, the corpse, after being resuscitated, responds in the same way. In both cases, the young man was dead, he, he hears the voice, he sits up, looking around like, I have just come back from the dead. Tabitha does the same thing. She opens her eyes, she sees Peter, and she bolts up, she sits up. You see that? And then Peter and the Lord Jesus do exactly the same thing. Once the resurrection has taken place, they take uh, the, the now uh, resuscitated corpse, and they bring the, the person to the people to whom they matter most. And so you see in Luke 7, Jesus presents the young, the young man to his mother, the widow, the widow. And then you see in Acts 9, he gathers the saints, and especially the widows, and he presents uh, Tabitha to them. And the word present is uh, the same in the Greek in both cases. And then we see, further, that the same exact thing happens as a result of these miracles. In the first case, Jesus becomes more famous and a report goes out about him and what he's done. So we read um, in 17, uh, Luke 7, 17, and this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. We also see that when they encounter this miracle, the people immediately attribute it to God and glorify God. In verse 16, fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. Identically, in Acts 9, uh, in verse 42. As soon as the resurrection takes place, it becomes known throughout all Joppa. And the result of this is that many believe on the Lord. Last night, I was, as I was sort of, you know, actually tallying these out one after the other, I just remarked to everybody, I said, this is the same story. It's virtually the same story. And most critically, the most critical thing that both stories have in common is that in the case, and this is what our, our, our first part of our sermon was a year and a half ago, that Jesus is not raising a young man from the dead. He is doing that. But by raising a young man from the dead, he's saving a widow. Because without the young man, the widow is done. 
She has no one to provide for her. She's left on the edge. She's economically vulnerable. And as we said a year and a half ago, by all accounts, within a year of this young man's death, she'll be dead too. By raising the young man and giving him back to his mother, Jesus gives the widow a second chance. And in so doing, Luke's pointing out, he's saying, look at what Jesus does. He does the same thing that God is, that God does. God, defender of the widows, is God, Psalm 68, 5. Luke's saying Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord and doing the Lord's work. And one of the most important things of the Lord's work is protecting widows. And then we see the same thing in Acts 9. Tabitha is full of good works and charitable deeds. She's, she's uh, uh, probably, a, um, probably the patroness of the church in, in, in Joppa. And I think we're going to talk about that in a second. But one of the interesting thing, the really interesting thing is that because she's dead, the widows in the church in Joppa are in trouble again. When Tabitha was around, she clothed them. She sheltered them. She's probably a woman of means. She protected them. She was their, their patroness. She was the one who made sure that they were okay. And now she's gone, and now they're in trouble. But God is the defender of the widows. And Peter has fallen, uh, followed in the footsteps of Jesus. He is doing the same type of ministry that Jesus has done, and he's doing it in the way that Jesus did it. And he is bringing back the widows into community. He's protecting them again by raising the dead. This is how far God is willing to go for widows. Uh, let's, let's talk just a little bit about uh, widows. Um, you'll notice in uh, what we just talked about that... Uh, that Tabitha is very likely the patroness of the uh, Christians in uh, Joppa. It so happens that at the, in the early church, the way that uh, very often we learn in Acts um, and from the Gospels, the way very often, and then from church history, the way very often the church grew was that wealthy um, wives would open up their doors. They'd, they'd become converted by the message of the apostles. And they would open their doors and create a place for the Christians to gather. And so the early church... Uh, by and large, met small uh, communities of people in the houses of, of wealthy patrons. People who, they had been convicted the Lord was the Messiah and were now uh, praising him with all the other people who shared that conviction. Now this is an interesting uh, development in the ancient world because up until this time, you really only opened your house to family and to people who shared your status or your socioeconomic level. You would never open your doors and welcome in someone who was poorer or not related to you unless they were a close friend. You would engage in patron-client relationships. This is not what's happened in the Christian church. In the Christian church, people who have never met suddenly become brothers and sisters because of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And now, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of the language you speak, regardless of your socioeconomic class, regardless of all of these things, you come together and you worship together. And not only that... Uh, it, goods are distributed amongst the church. So a, a woman like, like Tabitha Dorcas, who is wealthy and probably owns uh, or co-owns with her husband the, the home, that person then begins to distribute goods to people that are not her kin because she is now convinced that in the Holy Spirit they are her kin. And that's what we, we're seeing here when, when, when it says that Tabitha is full of good works and charitable deeds. She's, she's using her resources, her means to protect a vulnerable class, the widows. 
A final point, and this is just a little, one last retread from our, our sermon a year and a half ago, and that is widows. In Luke-Acts, in, in, in the two volumes, Luke and Acts, a widow is not only a woman who's economically vulnerable and who has no hub, husband, although it is that, she is that. A widow is almost a, a symbol, a class. It, it's almost a cipher, if you will. That is a nihilism, if you will. If you will, it's almost a, almost a cipher for people who, can't, who are on the, on the margins, people who are on the edge. Uh, to talk about widows is to talk about anybody who is economically and socially vulnerable and is in danger of falling off. Okay, let's see. That, yeah, that was 15 minutes and we just... Okay, I'm sorry, guys. I, if I had known that this was going to be a two-part series... I would have preached it a year and a half ago. I'm sorry. It's very bad. Highlights. You guys remember highlights? I'm sorry? Yes? The magazine. Yeah, you do. Okay, awesome. Uh, highlights magazine. Everyone's uh, from the 1980s. Or perhaps even earlier. Goofus and Gallant. Do you remember Goofus and Gallant? Oh, man. Something I've learned about um, children's magazines, uh, children's television it's always secretly educational. <laughs> They're always trying to educate you without you knowing it. Like, oh, I'm really enjoying the story, and boy, did I learn how to become a good little boy. <laughs> and, of course, Goofus and Gallon is the most, uh, it's the most obvious, where there's this guy, Goofus, if you haven't seen these comics. It's like two panels, Right? And there's these brothers, Goofus and Gallon. I think they're twins. But Goofus is a Goofus, and he's always making the irresponsible, selfish decision, right? And then his brother is Gallant, who's just a really swell guy, always does the right thing. And as you go through the comic, you see how, how Goofus ends up like tripping all over himself and alone and miserable because he was selfish or whatever. Whereas Gallon, the, the teacher smiles at him and he's like, oh, I'm great. Yeah. And, and so if you're reading this as a child, you're like, boy, I really want to be like Gallant. He's awesome. He is a really good guy. There's another feature in Highlights magazines, my personal favorite growing up, and that's the uh, What Has Changed panels. You guys remember these? Where on the one, on one hand, you have, you have a picture of a room, right? A child's bedroom. And there's a bed on there, but the bed is unmade, right? And there's a toy boat on the, on the floor, right? And the window is broken because there's a baseball that's, that's gone through and has dropped on the floor, right? And then you look to the next pane and it's an immaculate room. The bed has been made. The toy boat has been set on the shelf where it belongs. A brand new window has been installed and the baseball is sitting in the glove. You see the point, right? And, and, and it says to the children, oh, circle all the things that have changed, right? So I'd go through and I'm like, oh, yeah, Boy, that boat does look nice on the shelf. So much better than, than on the floor where it had been, where my Lego pirate ship is right now. Hmm. One to the next. What's changed? It's the same picture, right? It's the same, it's the same bedroom. But in one, things are a little bit different than the other. And, and the goal is, for, of course, for the child to identify the changes that have taken place. I'd like us to think about these two passages, Luke 7 and Acts 9, right now, as two panes in our Highlights magazine. In the first, we have the story of the dead son who was brought to life. 
In the second, we have the story of a disciple named Tabitha who has been brought to life. It's the same picture, the same story. But there are differences. And I think that if we've traced these differences, we begin to see something, we begin to, a, a story, another story, a third story begins to emerge. And I'd like to do that right now. The first thing that's changed uh, is the location. Um, we notice that uh, Nain is where the first story takes place. Nain is in the north of Galilee. It's the place where Jesus' ministry, uh, ministry uh, happens. It's where Jesus does his ministry. Our second story takes place in Joppa. Joppa is a western city. It's on the seacoast. It's still there. Uh, it's now Jaffa. Um, it's a, a port that serves Tel Aviv in Israel. It's a place of commerce and of, of cosmopolitan values. It's a city. It's a city in the way that Nain is a village. In fact, Nain's, I believe, still there. It's, it has a population of 1,600. Jaffa is a bustling seaport. And to be honest with you, not a whole lot has changed in the last 2,000 years. These are very similar circumstances. So you have the country and you have the city. It's the first change. Uh, the second change is that in the gospel, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem because he has a mission to complete. He begins in Galilee. He's moving towards Jerusalem that he might die for the sins of the world and be raised as the Lord of his church. In Acts, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now the Holy Spirit has come. And as, it's, uh, as it says in, in Acts 2, now um, the, church is, uh, the message of the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem, where Jesus was, to Samaria, meaning the surrounding region of Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth. So Jesus was heading into Jerusalem. Now we're heading out of Jerusalem. We're moving, we're moving out. So there's this, this trajectory that's changed. The next thing we notice, Tabitha is a woman, and she's a woman of means. Uh, we don't know the, the young man has uh, any means, but we presume because he's in the northern part of the country that he's a farmer. He's a subsistence farmer, which is why it's so important for him to be alive or his mother will have nothing to eat. Tabitha is a woman who has plenty. She has so much that she is willing to share it with others when she hears the message of the gospel. Uh, just so I, you, you note, on, on the note sheet, I've, I've um, bolded the major changes. So if you, if you're, and I should have bolded Joppa, but I didn't. Uh, so if you're, if you're following, disciple named Tabitha, a female disciple, she's a woman. She does good works and charitable deeds. She has means. She's able to do these things. Laid her in an upper room. This suggests that she has a large home. And a large home suggests to us that she would be able to house the church. And the next thing you notice, they sent two men to him. The disciples hear that uh, Peter is nearby in, in Lida, which is a little bit to the east of Joppa. And so they send two men. The reason they're sending two men is that the, the roads are dangerous. Uh, two have a better chance of getting through the message without being waylaid by robbers or at this time revolutionaries um, in that part of Israel. There's two so that they're, they're safer. Uh, so think, so it, it's indicating to us that we're in more of a cosmopolitan, more of a bustling city environment where there's danger. Uh, and that's changed. And that should suggest to us, as we're reading Acts, we know that the gospel's going where? To Rome, which is the, in the eyes of Luke, the ultimate example of a bustling, dangerous, imperial city. So we're getting a preview of what life will be like when we get to Rome. And then... 
I love the way that uh, the widows are, are mourning for Tabitha. All the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Imagine you're a woman of means uh, in, a, in a bustling cosmopolitan city. You're, you're, of course, you're going to want to go to all the, the fancy parties, uh, enjoy the status of, of your wealth. Um, you, that's the kind of person we'd all like to be, right? Not Dorcas. She's heard the gospel. And so she spends her days purchasing and weaving cloaks for women who have nothing of their own. And then, the most important theological change. Jesus walks in and says, young man, arise. Peter walks in and kneels down and prays. Because Peter's not Jesus. There's an interesting way that though Peter is carrying on Jesus' ministry, Luke's showing us that the ministry is still Jesus' ministry. It comes through prayer. It doesn't come through the power that we have. The Holy Spirit decides when and how Jesus' power will be manifest. And, and, and we are left to pray. That is the best we can do. So what do we have in, the, in these, two, these two panels in our Highlights magazine? What has changed? What is going on? Well, I want to suggest to you that the major change, the, the most important thing that's going on is we're beginning to see how the, the ministry of the church is moving out, how what happens after Jesus has left is going to carry on in differences. We're seeing in a different context, in a different time, the same ministry being carried out. And I think the, the, the implication for us is that we start out with Jesus' ministry, and then we move to the church's ministry where we are acting Jesus' acts through the Holy Spirit while he sits at the, at the right hand of the Father. We see that we've moved from a country to a city. We see that we've moved from a young subsistence farmer to a woman of means. We see that we've... But one thing hasn't changed. We're still looking out for widows. Everything seems to change. All the details change, but the story remains the same. God is the father of the fatherless, defender of the widows God is on his holy habitation, Psalm 68.5. That God is still God, even though these details change. And that means that we see the church's activity. We know that the church is from Jesus because the church does what Jesus did. That's how we know Tabitha is just like this young man. This is how we know that Peter is doing the same thing as Jesus because they're both uh, looking out for the widows. Keep calm and carry on. Was that Winston Churchill? Keep calm and carry on? I think that was Winston Churchill. Was it not? Who was it? It was never published? That ruins my story. <laughs> Wikipedia! <laughs> well, the idea behind the story was that during the London Blitz, bombs were falling, everything was changed, everyone was falling apart, and yet the British people kept calm and carried on. It's uh, the... 
If you read the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis uh, has, during, during the, the narrative of the screw tape letters, one of the things that the, the young Christian man experiences is the war, right? And there's a temptation from the tempter, screw, uh, screw tape, to become a, uh, to be scared, to, to succumb to the terror of the violence. But, but the young man listens to the angel on his shoulder, and instead, he keeps calm, carries on. So there's a great scene where, the, where Screwtape is relating what uh, happened that day. And the, the man was walking and like a, a building next to him blew up. And he gets down, he's scared, and he's like, what does it mean to be British? That's right. And then he goes to work. <laughs> That's a phenomenal. The British, what a, what a, what a great people. Um, Keep calm, carry on. The church has to keep calm and carry on. Jesus is no longer with us. Things have changed. We've moved from the country to the city. We've moved from a place where a young man takes care of his mother to a woman of means takes care of the widows. We've moved into a different world, but we're going to keep calm and carry on. We're going to continue doing the things that define us as God's people. We are going to continue the acts that show that we have the same character as the God who saved us, the God who defends the widows. Well, then we need to add a third panel. We've got, we've got uh, the widow of Nain. We've got Tabitha Dorcas. Now we have Coast Valley Church 2013. What's changed? When I was in uh, junior high school, I believe it was my eighth grade year. A lot of junior high stories today. Uh, there was a tragedy where there was a young girl uh, in my class. Her name was Jessica. We'll call her Jessica Smith since I don't have um, her permission to tell the story. But one day her father, who was a small business owner, came to his place of work a little bit early in order to get some some things done and found that it was being robbed. Uh, And he tried to intervene to stop the, the robbers, the thieves, and one of them had a shotgun and killed him. Jessica was, I believe, in the 8th grade. To this day, I will never forget, it was in this sanctuary. Uh, I was at Stony Brook Christian School. I believe, it was, I believe it was before the expansions, so it was a little bit of a thinner building. But it seemed very large to me because I was very small, or smaller. And I was sitting um, back there in, in the back corner during a memorial service uh, a day or so after her father had been murdered. Um, and uh, you can only imagine the tears uh, this was a, a good man who'd left behind a wife and two daughters, um, a pillar of the community, and he was no longer with us. And I remember sitting back there as a young man during the, the testimony time. They opened up the mic. If you have a testimony that you'd like to talk about, John, to say about John Smith, please come forward. And this, this uh, young Hispanic man came forward, and he stood right here uh, in front of the microphone, and he had on a brown suit uh, and a dark brown tie. And he said... Uh, Before John Smith came into my life, I had no opportunity. I had nowhere where I was going to go. I really didn't have a future. He gave me a job. He taught me to support myself. He taught me how to to love my family, to be a good husband, a good father. And then as he begins to break down and cry, he says, this is what he says, he bought me this suit I'm wearing today.
And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. We live in a world where there are still people on the edge. We have a social safety net. We have um, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, I believe that's being somehow expanded in the next year or so. We have a lot of differences in our cultures. But one thing is constant in human society, and that is people who are on the edge, who are vulnerable. We live in a society where there are jobs. There were no jobs, actually, in the first century. You either had a plot of land and you worked it, or you were something like an indentured servant to somebody who did. So they didn't, you, you didn't apply for jobs the way that we apply for jobs. But, so there's a difference in our economies, of course. But that doesn't change the fact that there are people in this congregation who are on the edge, who each month don't know if they're going to be able to get everything they need to make it. John Smith, Jessica's father, carried on the work. He kept calm. He carried on. I'm sorry to report that he was not at that time brought back from the dead, but I am confident that there is a day coming when he will be. Tabitha welcomes widows into her home. Perhaps they live there. Welcoming someone into your home in the first century means you're my family. You're not just, you're my brother, you're my sister. This woman who has the whole world at her fingertips looks to the least of these, the most vulnerable, and says, you know what? You're my brother, you're my sister, and I'm going to treat you that way. In this community, you'll, you'll notice that a lot of times, I, I haven't begun calling women sister, but I do often call um, guys here brother. It's like, hey, brother, how's it going? Um, I don't know why I do that, but I believe it signifies something, and that is what I've always believed about this church. This is my family. You people are my blood and the Holy Spirit. We are united here as one people. We are the new Tabithas, and we are the new widows. We are now, some of us have means, and we use those means to care for others. If that's uh, getting you through the month, if that's giving you a job, if that's uh, providing for you in some way, if that's helping you out, showing up when you need me to show up, that's what this community does. I've seen it all my life growing up here. I've seen it time and again where somebody was on the edge and somebody in this community showed up and said, no, you're not on the edge, you're my brother, you're my sister. And in so doing, you are carrying on the work of the gospel. You are keeping calm. You are carrying on. Though the winds and storms of life do, uh, come over you, they do not prevail. You keep calm and you carry on when you care for this family. When you come and you're on the edge, you're not an outsider. You are brought home to your brothers and sisters, united in the bond of the Spirit. Uh, uh, united in the bond of the Holy, Holy Spirit. What is it? The bond of peace. There it is. Bond of peace in the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. You're not just somebody down there. You're a brother or a sister. Man, brothers and sisters are so irritating. Are they not? Oh my goodness. All right, I'm going to wrap this up here. Um, I'm going to go on too long. But 
gosh, I just want to just point out, growing up next to the Eichlers, Jeff and Scott, all throughout growing up, I was like, man, I am so glad I'm an only child. Because they were at their throats constantly. And then they were the best men in each other's weddings. That's family. That's what we've got going on here. We have kept calm. We have carried on. You are brothers and sisters. You are my brothers and sisters. You are the brothers and sisters of one another. Do not forsake that calling. Because in so doing, you are partaking the character of God. The one who is the father of the fatherless. Defender of widows, God is from his holy habitation. Jesus showed us. Peter carried on the work. And now we continue to be a picture of the last day when there will be no more vulnerability. When we don't need to do these things anymore. When we will be fully taken care of. Until that time, keep calm. Carry on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this family. We thank you that you have made us brothers and sisters in your spirit. That you, are, you have created us children born from yourself. We thank you, Father, that in Christ Jesus, we have a new family, not bound by ethnicity, not bound by socioeconomic status, but bound by the Holy Spirit. We look forward to the day when there will be no widows. In the meantime, we pray, God, that if we are widows, that we will be cared for, and that if we are people of means, we will do the caring for. God, you have been so faithful to us over the years. And we pray as a people that we will continue being faithful to you, keeping calm, carrying on until the last day. We thank you, Father. And in your son's name we pray. Amen.